So welcome to chapter two, so to speak, of our How to Study the Bible series. Um, it looks like most of you actually were here last week, which is really helpful. Um, those of you that weren't, you already know all this stuff and you're just taking a refresher anyway, so we're okay with that. Um, but the, the, I want, I'm not going to spend a ton of time going over what we did last week, but I will, just for the sake of review, because they're going to pop into our usage again, remind you of the two big words, the two $20 words that you use to impress all of your super churchy friends. If you want them to think that you are the uber spiritual person, you'll remember the two words, exegesis and hermeneutics. Um, the reason why those words are important is not so that you can sound smart. I'm sure you can do that well on your own, but it's because the process of Bible study that we're going to apply as we go through this series always focuses on the exegetical process and the hermeneutical process. So just by way of review, uh, and I'm going to try to do this so we can get your brains a little bit warmed up. For those of you that are here last week, could you roughly tell me what exegesis is? Roughly. I'm not going to make you quote. You don't have to raise your hand. Oh. Go ahead. What you context. got? What is the context? Yeah, so trying to understand context. Context is huge to exegesis. What else would we say about exegesis? Oh, yeah. Trying to figure out the original writer and recipient. I think if we combine those two ideas, we have all the crucial concepts to exegesis. Exegesis is trying to figure out what the text meant to the original writer and the original recipient and does that by trying to understand the context. And we talked about two different kinds of context, the historical context and the literary context. You'll see how this stuff comes into play as we jump into this section, okay? Um, hermeneutics, so the other $20 word, hermeneutics. Um, do you remember anything about that word? What's that mean? Yeah, I like it. So once we've done the exegesis to figure out what it meant to the person uh, who first wrote it and the persons who were first receiving it, then the hermeneutical process, the hermeneutics is, so what does that mean for us? How do we try to get that, that temporal message into a timeless reality that can apply to our lives? So that's what those two big things are. For the rest of the night, or the rest of the nights that we get together for Prothumia, the goal is to now look at the different types of literature that are in the Bible and work through some tips of how to do exegesis in that literature and how to do hermeneutics in that literature. So we're going to start tonight with epistolary literature, um, the epistles, which we're going to just uh, in, a, in a moment kind of define what that is. But I want to show you why we're going to start here, because these have a tendency. I know when I was first starting to study the Bible, these were the ones that I felt like the epistles were the books that I felt like I could the most easiest the most easily go to and figure out what it was that I was supposed to do. The problem is, as a result, point one of your outline there, and if you guys are outline filler inners, you've got blanks and pens and all types of things to try to help you kind of stay on. The, the epistles can often be easy to understand, but as a result, they, it's also easy to make assumptions about what the things mean, okay? So here are some just key questions to kind of warm our brain up uh, in terms of issues that pop up with the epistles. Um, number one, do situational letters apply to today? Now I've already let the cat out of the bag to show you that the epistles essentially just are letters, and that's what we were gonna say in, in just a minute. But 
do the epistles of, that were written 2,000 years ago, do they apply today? For instance, I put an example of Philemon 1. Philemon is, I think, the shortest book, pretty much close, close to the shortest book of the New Testament. And it's a letter from Paul to Philemon about a slave that Philemon used to own. Um, and it's in this very short letter it's kind of an odd situation for us to think about if you were just, let's say, walking down the street and saw a folded piece of paper on the ground and you opened it up and saw uh, Dear Joe and the body of a letter and at the bottom saying, Love Mary, you might be able to learn some things there, but, but the question is, would that even apply to your life at all? And normally, hi, normally in the circumstances, uh, we would... We would think, well, this is a very personal type of situation for me to think that I somehow would be related to this. Um, that's, that can be an issue when trying to understand epistles. Number two, um, in epistles, are there any cultural distinctives? Cultural distinctives. Um, I, put a, I put an example here that you'll probably hear me refer to a couple of different times in the evening, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But let me read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6. It says this, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, well, that sounds pretty easy to understand what he's saying. What in the world would that mean for us today becomes the key question, right? And if you note, this comes into a larger context that talks about whether or not somebody's head should be covered according to their gender and what they're doing in the church. And you'll notice, um, as I'm looking around the room, all of you attend Sierra Bible Church with some amount of regularity. We're not one of those churches where all the women's will wear fancy, all the women wear fancy hats and all the guys make sure that they take their hats off when we're praying. We clearly as at SBC have taken a stance on this passage that has actually been a somewhat divisive thing in other churches where they might sometimes say, no, 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 this passage very clearly states that those fancy hats for women are absolutely necessary if we're going to gather together for a church. I would argue to you and see our Bible church's position on this issue would also mention to you that that might possibly be a culturally distinct component that might instead have a deeper message that would be applicable, but the particulars to that message about whether or not the head is actually covered or whether or not women need to be shaving their heads, etc., etc., that maybe those cultural distinctives that come into the passage are not what actually is important in terms of the deeper message. So it, again, kind of pointing back to the fact, the fact that sometimes the text is easy to understand, but the assumptions of that understanding sometimes get more difficult. A third example here before we then jump into it, even on the quote-unquote easy passages, do we even know what the words mean? And I wrote for you there um, a very famous verse that if you've been around the church for very long, uh, you've, at, you've heard it at least one time, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That makes total sense, right? The problem is some of us that have heard that verse 2,326 times are taking all kinds of assumptions or making all kinds of assumptions of what those words mean. There are some super loaded words in that sentence. 
for all have sinned. What does that even mean? And they've fallen short of the glory of God. What is that? We've got these things in a very simple verse that we could say, well, everyone has sinned and they've all fallen short of the glory of God. But that still leaves us in a place of trying to understand what does that mean? And what did that mean for Paul who was writing it? What did it mean for the Romans when they were receiving it? And then what does that mean for us today? So all of this stuff is th- are things that we need to consider as we dive into epistles. So let's ask point two here, what is an epistle? Most of this we can kind of shoot through pretty quickly. Point A, um, an epistle is a form of a first century document. And I put, it that, I put that point first because in as much as point B here says letter, I think that's easy to understand. Um, point A makes it sound all academic and everything. It's a, it's a form of first century document. Yeah, I, have to, I have to use my English accent when I'm saying it. But the, the point is, sometimes we don't realize because maybe your only exposure to literature from that time frame is the Bible, and that's fine. But sometimes we forget that even the way in which the letters in the Bible were formed match a pattern that was being used during that time frame of other letters that were being written. And if you can understand or compare sometimes letters outside the New Testament, you realize that, oh, this is the greeting section. Oh, this is the body section. Oh, this is the blessing section. And realize that it may not necessarily be a completely off-the-cuff type of situation, and that helps you try to understand those things a little bit more. So, they're very common in the first century. Very, uh, letters is probably the easiest way to understand it. Point C, they comprise almost all of the New Testament. Um, whether or not you have experience with the New Testament, you'll, you'll notice that um, the only exceptions in point C are listed. All of the New Testament are epistles, or they're letters, with the exception of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Revelation. Everything else in the New Testament is some form of epistle. And so to try to understand the New Testament, which primarily is the basis upon which the Christian faith is built, you've got to be able to understand and deal with epistles well, okay? So that's why we're going to start here. All of them were written within the first century. Now, that's a position that we hold here at this church. Um, You should know that in Christian theology and in Christian biblical studies, there are people that don't necessarily hold that to be true. Those are often not considered to be a conservative viewpoint. Um, so you should know that some of that is, is argued for various reasons that we're not going to get into here. Um, but our church holds that all of the epistles that, are, that you can find in, the, in your New Testament were written between the dates roughly of the 50s. And I'm not talking 1950s. I'm talking the 50s, 50s, the 50s, 50s, and the early 90s. So everything was written kind of in that 40-year time span that was there. Um, point E, we mentioned this last week, and here's where we need to really um, tease this out a little bit more. Point E, the epistles are occasional documents, occasional documents documents. And by that I mean they are arising out of, sorry for two ands here, arising out of and intended for a specific occasion. Okay, let me give you a quote from this book again that I'm going to keep kind of pointing to saying, hey, I'm getting most of my, I'm getting kind of the format of how we're doing this class from this book's structure, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. A quote from this book, most of our problems in interpreting epistles 
are due to the fact of their being occasional. We have the answers, but we do not always know what the questions or the problems were, or even if there was a problem. It's much like listening to one end of a telephone conversation and trying to figure out who's on the other end and what that unseen person is saying. Yet in many cases, it's especially important for us to try to hear the other end of the conversation so that we know what our passage is a response to. So that's the key component to trying to understand the epistle. They're occasional documents. Something was going on which caused the author to write this letter. But in as much as what we have is the author's response to that issue, we don't always have all the preceding information that came prior to that letter, the reason why that letter was written to begin with. And trying to understand what is being stated in the letter requires us to try to understand the larger problem that's being addressed. Um, point E1 here. As such, they teach, and this is a term from the book that I really like, they teach, quote-unquote, task theology. Task theology. And by task theology, what we're talking about is that in these letters, theological information is being used to address a problem, okay? Theological information is being used to address a problem. What's not being done is somebody sitting down and writing out a systematic theology. You could get a systematic theology book. Um, they're good to have because they're fantastic doorstops. They're normally giant books. And in doing so, you could get a systematized, you know, a, a, a very clear black and white, step one, step two, step three. Here's all the stuff you need to know about Christianity. And it comes in a very logical um, post-Enlightenment era way of thinking about theology. I'm not saying that that's bad to do. It's actually worth doing. The problem is that you can't dive into New Testament epistles to try to understand that in a very linear, sequential fashion. Because instead, the author is taking what is known to be true and applying it to the problem that's being addressed. So we pull out theological points, and it's, it's important to do that, but they're not always in sequence with one another. They're not always wholly made. Maybe just, you ever tried to make a point um, we're going through this with my uh, seven-year-old right now, where um, we'll make an argument to him about something, and he will immediately find, like, the counterexample to that argument. You know, like, you never wear a jacket when it's cold outside, right? And, and his example will be like, well, I wore a jacket six days ago, right? Instead of, like, the general concept is dress warmly, right? But he, he'll look, it's that very same thing where they're, the author in these epistles is using maybe just a portion of it or making a general statement, but not in a real precise theological way all the time. And so it's important to recognize that they're using the theology for the task at hand because it's an occasional document, okay? So that's what an epistle is. So then what I wanna do with the rest of our time together is ask ourselves, how do we exegete the epistles? What's the process of exegesis? And how do we, uh, what's the hermeneutical process with the epistles? How do we do hermeneutics with the epistles? And that's what we're going to do with each group of literature that we find. So let's start first because we remember from last week that we always start with exegesis. We never start with hermeneutics. And we talked about all kinds of the problems that come as a result of trying to do that. If we start in exegeting the epistles, the first process we're going to go through is point A, trying to understand the historical context. In understanding the historical context, 
I wrote this, as an occasional document, you must reconstruct the occasion. That's a pretty useless statement, but it bears repeating at this point because that's the key moment. That's the key thing for these epistles. These are occasional documents. As a result, we need to reconstruct the occasion. There is a reason why this letter was being written. We need to figure out what that reason is. That's what we do when we're trying to figure out the historical context. How do we do that? One of the best tools to reach for in these moments is the Bible dictionary or a Bible dictionary. Now, I talked to you last week about the fact that there are a variety of Bible dictionaries available. If you have neither the budget nor the inclination, you don't even need to buy one anymore and you can go on the internet. And we talked about the strengths and weaknesses of that as a tool. But there are some key things that you'll want to figure out. Um, either from this Bible dictionary or using the internet. The goal is to try to learn about the city and its people. Almost all, not all, but almost all the epistles were written to a group of people or a church in a specific city. And they, there are some that uh, were written specifically to a person. I already mentioned Philemon. Uh, but most of them were written to a people group somewhere. And so what you'd want to first try to find out is, we, let's find out what these people are like, right? I mean, if you wanted to try to understand um, a letter written to a group of people, if you don't understand who that group of people are, you won't be able to understand the points that are being addressed in that letter. So you're going to want to find out things that I've, I've kind of left on the sheet. And I've left a lot of info on your sheet because I want you to be able to use it as kind of a reference point if you want to. Um, but point A, what were these people known for? Point B, what ideas were prevalent? Uh, point C, how long had that church existed and how did it start? For instance, if you want to try to understand um, the letter to the Ephesians, it's really helpful to understand what was the city of Ephesus like? What type of people were there? And what ways were they thinking during this time frame? It's very different. I don't know if you've ever studied any other type of history. It's very different to try to read a letter that might have been written to an American in, let's say, the late 1800s, with based on what was going on in the country during that time frame, and then read a letter that was written 10 years ago. There's all kinds of differences between those two types of letters, not just the language and the way in which language is being used, but even just what was going on in culture, what things were assumed to be true, what things were affecting you. Don't imagine that you could somehow be interacting in America in the late 1800s and the concepts of the Civil War not somehow being a part of the way that you were interacting with people on a daily basis. That's not very much what we've been discussing in the last 10 years. We've been discussing very different concepts that affect us. And understanding those concepts would help you understand a letter that was being written during those time frames. Another way to then understand, once we've start, started doing some work of the historical context, is we've got to get the literary context. So here we go to point B. How do we get at studying the literary context of the book? Here is probably one of the toughest things to try to um, convince somebody to do, and yet the easiest, cheapest, and best way to try to understand the text of Scripture. Ready for it? Super duper secret answer. You're getting it. No one else is getting it. Ready? Read it. <laughs> for whatever reason, and I don't know what it is, because I, I do it too. 
I do it too. So I'm not going to say that you guys are different than me or people outside this room are different than me. But sometimes we'll read a passage of Scripture and just be like, I don't really understand that passage of Scripture, right? Well, how much time did I actually spend reading it? I'm not, I don't want to hop up on a, on a soapbox because I probably don't have to convince you anymore. But in our culture, we've kind of lost our ability to read. Like, yes, we know how to process words-ish. Like, we kind of know how to do that. But it's not a real common thing anymore for us to sit down and really struggle through a text of anything, for that matter. Lawyers are pretty good at it because they have to read legal briefs. Judges are pretty good at it. Law enforcement officers are okay at it because they have to read that legal jargon. Um, but it starts kind of going, maybe a little bit of teachers. You know, obviously anybody that kind of went, like really dove in and get, got the full academic experience in college. But for the most part, people don't really struggle through any type of text anymore. Friends, that's going to have to be a habit that you build if you're going to try to understand the text of Scripture. You're going to have to get used to reading Scripture and reading it actively and proactively. You can't just scan your words across the printed, the, I'm sorry, scan your eyes across the printed words on the page and hope that you're just going to absorb all of the information. You're going to have to work for it a little bit. You're going to have to earn it. The beautiful part is that the Spirit of God is involved in this process. And if you want to know God and you seek Him out by seeking His Word, he will, in time, reveal these things to you. He, he's not going to dump everything into your mind because you can't handle the truth to begin with, right? It's going to take a process. But the more you apply yourself to the process and become intentional about it, the more successful you will be in that process. And fortunately, the easiest way to start that process is read. So at point one, at a minimum, you should read, for the literate, understanding a literary context, you should read the whole letter at one time. I'm talking from start to finish of that letter. At minimum, you should read that two to three times. At minimum. The more, the merrier. When I first took a Bible study methods class in my undergraduate program, and I first had a teacher that was like driving this home, I, this was a whole semester class, and we worked literally with one book, and it was, I think it was Ephesians. And we read the book of Ephesians. Our requirement was to read that book uh, all the way through. Uh, I, I want to say it was like five times a week for every week of that class. Uh, the point is, once you start reading something over and over and over again, you start to notice things that maybe you didn't read it on the first time through, the second time through. And if you're not used to books, you could think about this in terms of movies, right? You ever, like I personally try, I reserve my opinion on a movie until I've seen it two or three times. Because typically the first time I'm watching it, it's more of a, and I'm talking about how non-manly I am right now, but it's more of an emotional experience to me. Like the music will wrap me up in it because I don't see a lot of movies. Like the emotional stuff like gets, like hits me really hard. But I can't really think about the bigger picture things like the overall message of the movie that's being conveyed, the worldview that's being conveyed, the character development. I can't think of all that stuff because I get too immersed in it. And so I have to watch it a couple of times before I start to truly understand. And then, then I can tell you whether or not it's a decent movie, right? Um, or at least in my opinion, I guess I should say. The same thing, that same process goes with the way that we read. Don't read something one time and think that you just picked up everything. 
You can read this book every day for the rest of your life and you still won't understand everything that's in it because it is reflective of an eternal God who has been around and always will be around and we will never exhaust our knowledge of who he is and what he wants to reveal to us. But we've got to get to reading it regularly in order to be able to do it. Simple idea, difficult discipline to employ. But while you do it, hear the process, here's the process of what we start to do as we're reading it regularly. We're getting the sense of the tone of the author. Is this an angry letter? Is it a happy letter, right? If, you, if you've read any of these things, I'll just throw these out there. If you're not familiar with them, it's okay. If you read Philippians, Paul sounds super stoked. The word joy shows up like umpteen times throughout there. He is so excited about what's going on in Philippi. Conversely, you read Galatians, and Paul is ticked off and says some pretty drastic things. Same guy, but two different people groups to whom he's writing under two different types of occasions, and the tone is really different. That affects how we understand it. What, are the, what do you learn about, uh, so you get a sense of the tone of the author, you see what issues are addressed and how they relate to one another, and at this point, while we're going through, here's the beneficial thing, um, or at least a, it's a positive thing, at this point, don't worry about the confusing details that present themselves. You're just focusing on making sure that you understand the big ideas. Get the big sweeping picture. Because remember, uh, there was a phrase that I said last week uh, that becomes part of the literary context. Uh, words only have meanings in sentences. Sentences only have meanings in paragraphs. Paragraphs only have meaning in the scope of the, the idea as a whole. You're getting the idea as a whole when you're reading the text like this. And you're wanting to try to answer the following questions. Here's some blanks just to try to help you um, scan back in. Uh, point A, what do you learn about the recipients, right? So what, what type of information you start picking up about the people that are getting this letter? Did they know what they were dealing, right? To use the example I was just talking about with Philippi versus Galatians. The Philippians, you learn that these people have been doing a whole lot of things right and that's great. The Galatians, not so much. They, they were causing some problems. And so you start to learn those things and make those notes. Point B, uh, what's the attitude of the writer? We've already talked about that uh, in, in one way. What are we learning about the author? Point C, is there anything mentioned in the letter that tells us about why it was written. So that blank is why it was written. Is there anything mentioned in the letter that tells us about why it was written? I'll keep using John as my example, although John is a gospel and not an epistle, but sometimes it's really super nice when the author goes, hey, I'm writing you because of this. And John says, I'm writing that you might understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Sometimes it's just right out there in front of you. You can see, hey, this is what we need to address, okay? Then point D, as you've been doing this a couple of different times, one of the things you're going to start to need to do is to break down the whole letter into parts. So start breaking it down into chunks. Hey, I can see that this initial chunk right here seems to be dealing with this. I can see that the next chunk after that seems to be dealing with that. The next, and so you start kind of making notes to yourself. And this is not... This isn't a paper that's, you know, 17 pages long and has all kinds of theological information involved in it. 
th this sometimes can be done with uh, four sentences, right? You're now taking five chapters of, of the New Testament, a, a whole letter, and writing that this is what these look like. If you have a study Bible, a lot of the times these chunks uh, will be labeled, or there will be chunks that are labeled up above. So I've got like ESV here. This is not a study Bible, but ESV likes to use these headings here. And that can be good and bad. It's good because it can help you find stuff, and it, and it helps you kind of stay on track at least of a general idea of what this chunk is. The problem is, or the issue that you still need to do the work of, is they don't tie the chunks together for you. They just give the chunk a title. You still have to do the work of figuring out why is he discussing this issue now in the flow of thought. But that ought to make more sense because now you've read this whole thing over and over again, and you can kind of see where the flow of thought is going. Now, what do we do with all that information? We've been gathering information in this exegetical process. What do we do with it? Step three. Now we're going to take our big sections and we're going to now we're going to start to take each of those sections and break them down into smaller sections and start answering the questions that we've already answered above. What does this smaller section teach me about the recipients? What does this smaller section teach me about the writer? Is there anything that's mentioned in there that tells me what specifically we're addressing? So we do those things again in our smaller sections, but then we start adding this new information to it because we've, we're now kind of, we're going from the macro view and progressively working our way down to the microscopic view, okay? The next steps that we're gonna do, this is point 3A1 here. Also complete the following. Point one, make a list of key words. I gave you an example just a moment ago of the letter to the Philippians. Over and over and over and over again, Paul uses the word joy. If you start seeing the same word or variations on the same word over and over and over again, you should be jotting that down. That's a major theme. That's something that you need to use to try to understand what's going on. Point two, similarly to the words, take note of repeated phrases. If there's a phrase that's used all the time, then you need to take note of that. Um, I did this, uh, we did this as a large group exercise uh, the last time that I preached for here for Sierra Bible Church, we were here and I showed while going through a section of Colossians, how often you may have missed it if you hadn't read the passage over and over and over and over again. But when you when I started to push us to look at the passage, we realized that in like six short verses, Paul seven different times uses the phrase all things. He keeps doing it. All things, all things, all things. That's a big deal for us to notice. If that phrase is used over and over and over again, jot that phrase down because that's going to help us understand what the main point of that section is going to be. Okay? Point three. Then you're going to ensure that you understand the message of each paragraph. Now, by this point, you ought, have, you, you ought to have already done this. But if you didn't, this is the point in which now you got to make sure that it happens because you can't really move on with literary context until you're sure that you understand. Uh, are they playing Red Rover? <laughs> I kind of want to play Red Rover if that's what they're playing. Uh, 
this is the point at which if you haven't put in the work to try to sort it out, you, you need to make sure, do I understand what this paragraph is saying? Maybe not necessarily every single little point or even every single verse, but would I be able to tell you exactly what this paragraph is saying? Because the last thing that you're going to do in point four is you're going to chart the flow of thought. You're going to chart the flow of thought. Now, this may seem, this may seem like, I don't know. I, I don't know what it seems like to you. This is not what I normally do with a book, okay? That's, it's just not what I would normally do. This is a passage that, or a, a process that, that has kind of been lost on me. But if you're going to try to understand one word or one phrase that you're just having a really hard time with, remember that line that I first shared with you and repeated tonight. Words only have meaning in sentences. Sentences only have meaning in paragraphs. Paragraphs only have meaning in the, in the big idea. You've now gone through the process the opposite way. You've focused on the big idea. Now you've gotten down to the paragraphs and you're understanding the relationship of the paragraphs to one another. If you don't do that first, you won't be able to dive into the individual sentences to try to really get in there, especially when those sentences start saying things like, hey, if she doesn't have her head covered, make sure she shaves her head. Uh, if I just pull that sentence out and throw it at you, that seems very direct, but you, you will probably not understand what that is about until you see the paragraph that that's a part of and until you see then the bigger idea that that's a part of, the larger chunk of that letter, and then you see what the letter as a whole is about. That's why we're going through that process. Does that make sense? Those are just real general guidelines, but you can see you don't need any fancy tools for this. You don't need anything super specific. You don't need a college degree. All you need to be able to do is have a version of the Bible that you can read. And we talked about that last week. And you need to just start doing the work of reading it a bunch and then just making some notes to yourself. Once you've done that, there's a part of me that's tempted to just skip everything else that I'm going to say tonight. Um, and if you want to leave, I won't be offended if you have something better to do. But the point is, friends, the fact is most people don't do this with their Bibles. What they do instead is they show up on Sunday morning and hope that whatever the person that's up front says is something that connects with my heart. And then they try the rest of the week of doing whatever it is that they heard on Sunday morning. That is a fantastic first step into Christianity. The problem is most Christians that I know do that for 35 years. And they ask themselves and then ask me as a leader, why am I not growing in my faith? It's because you've never learned how to feed yourself. You still are showing up and expecting somebody to feed you on one dose per week and that that's somehow going to connect you with God. It's not going to work. It simply is not going to work. I'm glad that you're doing it. Don't get me wrong but you're gonna to have to take some more steps. And this is not a difficult process to do. And I can't even promise you by doing this that you will understand every single word of the New Testament epistles, I won't. But what I can tell you is that if you're willing to put in this work, you will understand all the main ideas of the New Testament epistles, and you won't need anybody to spoon feed you that information. That becomes crucial if you're going to be a person who I refer to as self-feeding. 
You're no longer somebody that is dependent upon a pastor to provide you your information. You and your relationship with God are now diving into these ideas and you're letting him use his text to, to change your life because you know what it's like to read the Bible and to understand what it's talking about. Even if you don't get the little nitty gritty points that seem to be confusing sometimes, you'll get the majority of everything that you would ever need to possibly have. You do that alone, everything else that I'm saying is extra. So please, just do this and I'd be super stoked. I'm gonna throw out a few things here though, going from here, okay? Here's some guidelines for particularly problematic passages, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because in as much as I think a lot of people would have a tendency to want me to, because this is where you're talking with your coworker and they're like, well, the Bible's just got all kinds of errors, and they go on the internet and find a list of like five major errors of the Bible, and they show it to you, and you're like, uh, I don't know what that passage means. All of us know in our heart that that doesn't necessarily mean, well, then the whole thing must be false, right? It's, it's more of a, I don't know what this particularly means. And, and unfortunately, I can't unpack every single one of those for you. I just can't do it. Number one, it's because I can't necessarily unpack every single one of those for myself. But number two, I noticed this in algebra class. This was the first time that I noticed it in my, in my life. Did it ever, was it ever the type of thing for you in a class where, um, in my algebra class, I would sit there and the teacher would work out how to do the problem. And I'd be like, yeah, of course, that makes, that makes total sense. And then I'd go home to do my homework and I'd get to the first problem and be like, ah, I don't, I mean, it, and, it, and it was wrong, right? Every single time I would do it wrong. Algebra was my undoing. I found that that was just one of my weaknesses as a human being. If I did that for you for every single passage, I guarantee you um, that you would probably have that experience on almost every single one of those conversations. Um, and that's okay. That's a whole separate conversation of how does that play into the growth of a Christian and, and their relationship to Scripture. But I, what I want to do is just give you some general principles about particularly difficult passages, okay? Just generalized principles. Principle one, part A. Recognize that there may be parts of Scripture that do not say everything about the addressed topic, okay? These are occasional documents. We're talking specifically about epistles right now. They're occasional documents, okay? So you may, you're not going to get every single bit of information because they're doing the task theology. Remember that idea? They're, they're, they're just addressing a specific component for a specific reason. So... Um, when, when we're writing the letter, I'm sorry, I have to build up to this point for your blank here. Um, when, when the author was writing the letter, there's all kinds of past shared experiences that are assumed. Remember my example of the folded up letter that you found that was to John from Mary. If you just read that and didn't understand the relationship between John and Mary, you're not going to understand everything inside that letter. And sometimes there are just certain things that no matter how much work we do and how many dictionaries we consult, there are some components that we're just not fully going to understand. When Paul writes his greetings to specific, to specific people at the end of some of these letters, we don't know what these relationships are like, right? He refers to one of them. I can't even remember the guy's name, but I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. He goes, hey, watch out for this guy. Uh, he did me much harm. 
And we don't have any other information on this guy other than the fact that Paul mentions him at the end of the letter telling us something really went bad with this relationship with this guy. Um, sometimes we just don't have those past shared experiences at our disposal. And, be, and so as a result, we don't have access to all of this information. And so you may not be able to fully understand everything within that text. Thus, so here's your blank. Thus, don't rest major theological positions on incomplete information. You can't rest your major theological positions on incomplete information. We're going to go through an example here so that I can show you just picking one passage. Um, and I, I'm obviously going to take a stance on it, but I'm just going to use this by way of example so you can see how these principles come to play. Instead, what we're going to do is point B. We're going to focus on what can be said. Um, so in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, you can take a look at it if you want to. Um, we're not going to do a major study of this section, but I just want to use this as an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, in verse 29, 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 29, we read the following verse. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? I don't know if you're aware of this, but this has become a major point of uh, theological building block within the Mormon church. Uh, they have a practice of baptizing people for the dead, and they have built that entire theological position. Uh, by the way, I'm not necessarily lining up the Mormon church with the same as other Protestant denominations. I hold that the Mormon church is in fact a cult. But nonetheless, they have built their entire theological position for baptizing of the dead on this one verse right here. This is by way first of explaining to you, let's watch out when we come to these particularly difficult passages that we're not building a, a major practice of our theological beliefs off of one verse. If it's a major, it should be mentioned multiple times and that's something that we should be focusing on. If it's only mentioned once, we ought to be a little bit concerned about building a giant position on it. However, we can focus on what can be said. So in this example, in this verse that I gave you, there's no explanation on who's being baptized for the dead, why they're being baptized for the dead, or even how they're being baptized for the dead. There's no mention in this passage, in this verse or in the surrounding verses, how, who, why. We don't get any of that information from this passage, just that it was happening. Here, I'm going to jump ahead for a moment, and then we'll go back to the example. Here we learn an incredibly important hermeneutical principle on your sheet here. The hermeneutical principle is this, and this will become a little bit more important when we get to narrative uh, texts, but the principle is this. A, and your blank is, your first blank is a description, a description of what was happening is not a prescription for what should be happening. A description of what was happening is not a prescription for what should be happening. This is so crucial in understanding. Again, this is more hermeneutics, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, but this is a crucial tool to keep in your toolbox. 
when trying to understand the text of Scripture and to try to understand how to base your life on the text of Scripture, just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean that that's something that should have happened or that you should be doing, right? Um, Noah's, uh, no, not Noah's, uh, who was the guy in the Old Testament? Uh, never mind, that's, I'll skip that example. What other example comes to my mind? Um, Judas does Jesus wrong, and so he goes out and he hangs himself, right? That's a description of what occurred. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's something that somebody else should do. It's just describing something that occurred. We're going to talk more about that when we get to narrative texts. But that being said, the reason why I'm bringing it up here is what we have here is a description of something that's happening. People are being baptized for the dead. We don't know who, we don't know why, we don't know how, but we know that it's happening. Our point is, let's focus on what's being said. All we know is that people are being baptized for the dead. But we've got to point C, keep the big picture in mind. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And notice even just how this verse is written. Now, I'm not even giving you the, the uh, ability to do what I've just instructed you on how to do, right? Look at the paragraphs, look at the chunks, look at the big idea. But you can even see as we go back to the verse that there's something that should be triggering you. Look again at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Notice that the way in which this verse is written is it's a question. And the way that I'm trying to vocally inflect that question is to indicate for you that this is actually, because you now know how to do the job of doing this, it's actually part of an argument that Paul is making. And the argument that Paul is intending to make is that baptism for the dead indicated even to the Corinthians that they already were aware that people lived after they die, that there was something that people could benefit from after they died. Notice Paul is not using this passage to subscribe to baptism of the dead. He's not telling them that they should be baptizing for the dead. He's not saying any of that stuff. He's using the description of what had been occurring to show them that they already believe the point that he's trying to argue them to believe, that people go on living after they die. And the even bigger point that he is trying to establish is that you and I have the hope of resurrection, that one day you and I will be brought to life again in Christ, and thus we will live like him forever. And there are clear other passages in which Paul says those very things. Now, this was an example of one verse that could just throw you for an absolute theological loop. But if you've gone through the process that I've told you to go through, even if you don't know the who was being baptized for the dead, how are they being baptized for the dead, why, and we don't necessarily know that information, what you should still be able to do is say, you know what, I don't, I don't really know why that was going on, but I could tell you why Paul's bringing it up here, because look at this paragraph before here, and the chunk and the relationship that that paragraph has to the chunk, the argument that Paul has been trying to make. And you can still do that and still get the principle that, here's the most important point, you can still get the principle that Paul was trying to make to begin with. He was still using that as an example to convince them, hey, people go on living even after they die. You can still get that by doing the job that we already talked about through our exegetical process, okay? Last point on particularly problematic passages. 
commentaries can become very useful tools on these passages. Here's my um, two warnings about commentaries. Number one, not all commentaries are, uh, are equal in terms of their worth, in terms of their um, trustworthiness. Um, and, and so you need to um, look to a resource, either a personal resource or something written down. If you do end up getting a copy of this book, which I'm not necessarily trying to sell this book, um, but if you do, there's a, there's a list in the back where they suggest different commentaries for each book of the Bible. Hey, this is a good one for Romans. This is a good one for First Thessalonians. Um, and I like that they don't always pick the same commentary series. Jesse made a comment about this last week that you can't just buy all of one commentary series and assume that every single one of them is going to be a good one. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. And so um, reaching out to some good resources for that. So not all commentaries are created equal. Point two, um, don't run to them without doing your own work first. Because remember, a commentary is just somebody else writing about what the scripture says. Can that person be wrong? Even if they're published, can they be wrong? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, if they're on the internet, assume that they're wrong, right? <laughs> because they couldn't get published otherwise. <laughs> they, had to write, they had to write on the internet. Um, the, the, the point is, just keep into consideration that just because somebody wrote it down doesn't make it true. And so that's why once you start getting to a commentary that starts saying like this thing, this, and is explaining this thing that you, you aren't really, you haven't really been understanding, if their explanation doesn't match the whole flow of thought that you've already put in all the work to get, there's a good reason why you might want to be suspicious of that explanation. Because I don't, I don't share a paragraph with you and then all of a sudden start talking about, but dogs love peeing on yellow fire hydrants. But what I really want to tell you about exegesis is it, nobody does that, right? That's not how conversations work unless you have like severe ADD in terms of your conversation. <laughs> So that being said, it should match that flow of thought that you've already established, okay? So commentaries can be a good tool, but still got to do your work first, okay? So uh, that's, what we're, that's what I want to say about uh, exegesis in the epistles. So then let's talk about some hermeneutical principles. This is a little bit shorter of a section here. What I'm going to do is just give you some basic hermeneutical rules, okay? Basic hermeneutical rules. Um, the first basic hermeneutical rule, this is point A, the text cannot mean for us something that it never could have meant for the original recipients, for the original recipients. <clears throat> so I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out here because I, I made reference to it initially. I'm not going to go through the process of explaining to you or arguing for you um, why I hold this position, but I use the example of the whole head covering situation. Um, and I do not feel in the least bit violated in conscience uh, that we are not at a church where women have to have their head covered while we're in the service and that men have to have their head uncovered. Um, I know that people maybe have grown up with different in, or in different environments where that, those are things of importance for them. Um, but ultimately, I don't think you can establish it from the text. And so I'll just go ahead and throw this out here without actually unpacking the whole thing. And then 
tell you why I'm, I'm sharing this here. Ultimately, I think that passage is talking a whole lot more to do with gender roles and their interaction within the church than it is the very specifics of what's going on with their head, the hairstyle that they wear, whether or not there's a hat, things of that nature. The New Testament, the Bible in general, actually has a whole lot to say about gender roles. And I know that that's not a really popular idea in our current culture. And I still think it's point of a, I, I still think it's a solid point of discussion because I think that part of our cultural's understanding, our culture's understanding is even conflicting in and of itself, but that's a separate conversation. The point is the Bible has a lot to say about gender roles. And I think one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible is one of the earliest verses of the Bible in Genesis, where God specifically states out that man was made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. They both bore his image. And the beautiful thing that we learn from the first poem written in the Bible is that man alone cannot bear the image of God. Woman alone cannot bear the image of God. But when you start to understand the male-female differences, indeed, the scripture teaches us that there are differences as if you needed that to be an argument. But that's something outside these doors that sometimes they need to have an argument. But that male and female together both display different sides of the image of God. You cannot look to a man and completely understand all of God's characteristics. You cannot look to a woman and completely understand all of God's characteristics. But when you understand both male and female, you understand the characteristics of God. He chose to express it in two different genders. And there is a relationship that those two genders have to one another, not based on their importance, but based on the created order that best reflects his image. That being said, understanding that, the reference that Paul is making to hair coverings, head shavings, length of hair, as I have studied that passage personally, I've noticed that it seems to be referring more to the fact that people were starting to grow confused on how the genders were to interrelate with one another. And that's natural because Paul was writing in other letters into other regions that there was neither male nor female in Christ. And so people are saying, well, what are we then? Are we, are we a third gender? Are we, what does this actually mean for us? And Paul was still laying out, no, 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 we're not changing the whole thing that has been established since the very beginning in terms of the gender-related order. But... That being said, the practices that we're doing in a church need to reflect those gender roles. That's all I'm going to say in terms of unpacking that that text. The reason why I'm sharing that here is to go back to the basic hermeneutical rule. The text cannot mean for us something that it never could have meant for the original recipient. I don't think that I could jump into the passage that I've just been talking to you about and try to make an argument for you that women have to wear a specific hairstyle if I'm understanding the the text correctly. And the reason why is that they would have understood that text based off of the gender roles of what was going on there. If I try to make an argument for something other than the relationship of the genders to one another, then I would not be receiving the same message that they would be receiving. The particulars of their message might be different than my particulars, but the message to each of us is ultimately going to be around the same idea. 
It's the same eternal truth that might be expressed in different particulars. And so if I'm looking for what that eternal message is, it's never going to be something that could not have been said originally to those recipients. Does that kind of make sense? I know that's a giant step to make, but I'm going to try to buttress it with some further points here. Okay? So if that kind of makes sense, I can proceed. I'm seeing some furrowed brows. <laughs> Are you looking for me to validate what you did? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so, because the text cannot mean for us something that it never could have meant for these. Okay, I see see what you're dealing with. Number one, uh, I'm going to say I'm not going to like fully discuss that matter because it's the hermeneutical process for a narrative text, which is what your example is. It's just that that one's telling a story. That's a different hermeneutical process than what we would use for epistles. Um, which is, which is fine that totally fine. But I see what your general point is or what you're concerned with is that are we able to then kind of apply meanings differently? And I like that the example is you were using the particulars of a storm and somebody sinking in the storm were, were different, but the, the meaning of Jesus being with us is always the same. I would actually point to that as that's, that is essentially what we're discussing here is that some of the particulars may be different, um, but the, the message that you could ex- extract, maybe the core message there would still be the same. And I'm going to, that's what we're going to buttress the next couple of points with is that idea there. Um, let me jump, jump forward here. So we need for this buttressing a second basic rule. Okay. So here's the second basic rule. If the circumstances are the same or similar, then let me make sure I get the right word, the right wording here. Uh, Then the message is the same. If the circumstances are the same, then the message is the same. Look, this one should be a no brainer, but once you've done your exegetical work and as a result of your exegetical work in your literary context, you understand the historical context, you've done all that work. And then you get to a passage of scripture and you want to try to figure out how it applies to you. If you realize that the circumstances into which that was being written, the literary flow of thought makes sense, right? Paul um, is trying to address the fact that we have trials and um, he's going to encourage us in the midst of those trials to continue to endure them with patience uh, because God is using them to refine us. You look at that circumstance and you realize, do I face trials? Yeah, I kind of do. Do I need to know what to do, how to face those trials or how to address that internally when I'm facing those trials? Yeah. Okay. So the particulars are, are fairly similar at that point. Maybe their precise problem is not my precise problem, right? They're, I'm not getting 
whipped by my slave, or, or I'm sorry, whipped by my master as a slave in a house, but maybe in a similar situation, I have a completely unjust boss, right? The circumstances are fairly similar in that situation. And as a result, the meaning of the text is going to be basically the same thing to me as I'm pulling out that meaning. Whatever it is that would clearly have been the meaning that pulled out to that original recipient, that's going to be the same one to me, okay? But that's the easy one, right? That's the easy one. If the circumstances are the same, then the meaning's the same. When the circumstances are different, okay? And here's where we'll kind of close our time together. We're closing in on the end. When the circumstances are different, point one, the first thing that you should be doing um, and I, I kind of skipped over some stuff in, the, in your outline here. So let's say what we're trying to do is to understand a general message, and we're kind of struggling to understand what that general message might be, and the circumstances seem really different. This is where um, it comes in handy to look for the continuity of message in other areas of Scripture, in other areas of Scripture. There's a popular phrase... Um, in conservative theology that I wrote down for you there in point 1a, to let scripture interpret scripture. And interpret is another way of saying do hermeneutics of. Um, let scripture do the hermeneutics for you for other scripture. Here's what that phrase means, point B. Let me unpack it for you. Because God's character remains consistent, a message resulting from one set of circumstances is not going to contradict the message of another passage. Resulting from one set of circumstances will not contradict the message of another passage. Here's the thing. God is always consistent within his character. And so he's not going to, in one, uh, in, in one passage, try to tell you, that you ought to hoard everything you possibly can for yourself. And then in another passage, try to tell you to be generous with everything. He's not going to tell you two conflicting truths. But when trying to understand how to, uh, how to navigate that situation, it becomes helpful to try to see if we know that generosity is always that which he's going to be telling us to be, how has that generosity been expressed in other areas of Scripture? And this is where commentaries can be really helpful. Um, a lot of the times they'll put reference passages. Other useful tools to this can be study Bibles. If you have a study Bible, sometimes they'll have a verse that's written there, and then they'll write little abbreviated references close to that verse. And what that's doing is that's showing you other passages that talk about that idea or use that type of wording. And it allows you in your study to kind of jump around in Scripture a little bit and to see where are the other areas of Scripture that might be pretty easy to understand that, um, that talk about that same idea. So I can get a consistent picture of, okay, when talking about generosity, God always seems to address it this way. So this is the way that I should best apply the meaning of the text that I'm studying. Does that make sense? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Is that where a concordance would come in handy? A concordance can be really useful. Yeah. Concordances, um, generally speaking, will, will focus in on just a word. So if you know it's a key word, so remember when we were going through that process and there's a, a, a key word in that passage, a concordance can be useful. Where is that word used in other areas? But 
Where a concordance falls short for this purpose, because we're trying to understand the meaning and the main idea, a concordance won't show you the ways in which that word always is conveying the same meaning in other passages. It's just going to show you where the word joy was used, right? But if I had a, a if I had a passage of saying, consider it all joy when you face trials of, of many kinds, trying to understand James' letter, and I use a concordance, what I might find is that there's a passage in the Old Testament that said, and King Elimelech found joy in the destruction of infants, right? And so I'm going, okay, I didn't really learn a whole lot about joy from those two things because those ideas don't really talk about the same idea. It's just the same word being used. Um, so that's why those study Bible reference notes can be useful, but a concordance can be useful because sometimes that idea will be used in other locations. You just got to know what the weaknesses are of that tool. Uh, point two, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because I've already referenced it multiple times and we've looked through examples, but be aware that cultural differences may be a factor. If your exegesis indicates that a specific problem is being addressed, the principle might not apply to other cultures and other time periods. I'm going to read that again, okay? If your exegesis indicates that a specific problem is being addressed, the principle might not apply to other cultures and other time periods. So let me show you this kind of in action. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul addresses the fact for the, for the Corinthian people, are we allowed to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? He, he takes on that topic in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, I would doubt that you and I have ever been in a, a circumstance. It's possible because there are still places where this practice occurs, but in the Western world, um, there are fairly infrequently locations where meat is being sacrificed to idols and then sold on the marketplace. Um, it just really doesn't happen. So you probably will not ever be exposed to those types of uh, cultural distinctives, to those types of circumstances. The circumstances are going to be really different, right? But it's not a big stretch for you once you've now done your exegetical work to see that what Paul was really concerned with or where he turns that issue when you go study that section in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul never actually wants to spend a ton of time saying, yes, you're allowed to eat the meat to idols or no, right? Young Christians, that's what we want to know. When I was first studying, especially in the epistles, I just wanted to know what I was allowed to do and what I wasn't allowed to do. Um, one of my favorite Christian songwriters says, uh, don't teach me um, about understanding your soul. Um, just give me a new law. That's what I want, right? And, and it's, it's a temptation that we're all prone to. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. And that's totally not where God is taking us. Instead, he's trying to get us to the deeper understanding of how things work. Paul does the same thing with meat sacrifice to idols. Yeah, he addresses it, but he quickly gets to the heart of the matter of your concern needs to be of the perception of your brothers and sisters around you. Is your exercise of your ability to eat meat sacrificed to idols, is that going to cause problems for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And what Paul goes on to discuss in that passage is that what is much more important is the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's taught all kinds of places within Scripture, right? Jesus said that they will know that you are my disciples because uh, they will know that, that you sent me, Father, 
um, because of the love that Christians have for one another, that the unity of the church is of crucial importance to, uh, to Jesus. Paul jumps to that very same idea. The point is, is that these cultural distinctives and these differences may initially cause you to go, I don't really think that this passage applies. But if you do your exegetical work correctly, you realize that the way that Paul will then address that issue goes straight to something that completely applies. The practice of what we do and how it affects the unity with one another. That can affect all kinds of different things from drinking alcohol, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the words that we use, the way that we interact with one another, the way we use our free time, that that bigger concept is always there still needing to be applied to our lives. So the last point then, last point that I will use in terms of trying to caution you for the hermeneutical process, take great care and humility when trying to extract a principle from a passage clearly not intended to address that issue. Um, One of the phrases that I have always tried to employ for myself, especially because I often end up in teaching situations, is that I want to whisper where Scripture whispers and shout where Scripture shouts. So when it comes to the unity of the church, I'm going to use that example just because I unpacked it, I will shout over and over and over again that we must find a way to be united. And I will whisper, 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 whisper about the particulars, right? The church, somebody could still come up to me and say, can I follow Jesus and smoke marijuana, right? And I I would say, you know what? That's not an issue specifically that's addressed in scripture. That's a whisper issue. Here would be my advice to you, et cetera, et cetera. But am I gonna get up on the pulpit and start screaming down and dealing with this issue that's not in the text of scripture. No, I'm not. This is my personal way in which I think that hermeneutics are best applied. That what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna find the big concepts that are discussed all throughout scripture that are clearly the majors and I'm gonna major on those majors over and over and over again. Because as a result, my goal is to get that person who's asking me about that particular, can I smoke marijuana? I'm gonna send it back to them and be like, you need to try to figure out what you can do in order to better facilitate your unity with your brothers and sisters. I'm going to let the Spirit guide you on that process. That's a different way of doing it than me just telling you, hey, here's the list of things you're allowed to do, and here's the list of things you're not allowed to do, right? That'd be a whole lot easier, but that's not growth, and that's not us studying the Scriptures. It's not us seeking God. It's not us counting on the Spirit to work through our lives and to enhance the major things that he wants us to keep major. So I hope that this hasn't been overwhelming to you. Again, if there is anything that I could say, if if this was like way too overwhelming to you, remember that how simple the process actually is for the epistles to try to understand them. Read them, read them, read them, read them, and then read them again. And then once you've done that, read them, and then read them, and then read them, and then start making those sections for yourself, understanding those chunks, understanding those flow of thoughts. Reach out for the tools when necessary, and God will honor the process. Um, next week, I will, uh, next week we are taking a week off for Mother's Day, because next Sunday is Mother's Day. 
Um, and so I didn't want there to be any conflicts. Um, so we're going to take that week off. Uh, the week after that um, is my anniversary, my um, wedding anniversary. I'm going to be celebrating that with my wife. Um, and so uh, Wayne will be taking the next section. So it's not next week, but the week after that, he will come back and teach you through one, a topic on his very, uh, a, a very strong topic for his heart, how to do exegesis and hermeneutics from the Psalms. So the Psalms are very, the po poetry of the Old Testament is its own unique literary genre of scripture. Uh, and Wayne is uniquely suited to be able to deal with that very well. He has taught on Psalms multiple times. Um, so we will not meet next week, but then the week after that, we'll be back to apply these principles to the Psalms. Okay. Thanks for coming. Glad you were here. Have a great week.